Welcome again to A Thousand and One by One, where we take a film from the wonderful book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, discuss it, analyze it, and ultimately decide whether or not it should be in the book. I'm still Adam St. John. And I am still, unfortunately, Ian Woodington. Oh, that's sad. <laughs> Ian's just a sad British guy sitting across from me right oh, now. Oh, right. Well, yeah, bring, I don't know why to bring up that you're British. you got to bring race into it. I think... <laughs> Which would be funny if being British was a race and not a nationality. Oh. But that's neither here nor there. Oh, great. This is, we started this podcast off perfectly. Before we launch into today's episode, uh, Ian, what have you seen recently that you want to talk about? Um, I'm still on my uh, my Nick Cage kick. Great. I, I don't know why. I guess, you know, I got I got a hankering for the cage. I do have a, I, I have a, a little... A hankering for the cage. Yeah, you're welcome. That's good. That's a t-shirt right yeah. there. Oh, man. Let's get that printed. Yep. Let's get some merch going. Yep. You can find that on the Facebook page. <laughs> uh, I, I met the uh, the Pope of the Church of Cage when I was working Comic-Con a couple of years ago. And he's just, he's, he, re- he reignited my love for Cage. He's, he came, he was in full Pope regalia, big old Pope hat, and a picture of Nick Cage in the center of said Pope hat. And he was holding a sign with Nick Cage's face from the movie I will discuss briefly, Vampire's Kiss, where he loses his mind. It had a big old sign, that face, he stole the Declaration of Independence for your sins. I had to give him a big old hug. He said, may the cage be with you, and I said, and also with you. Oh, of course. Oh, it was, it was a magical moment. Anyway, Vampire's Kiss. Oh, is, God, uh, yeah, tell I'm, me about it. It's uh, it's another one where we get to see him go full cage. Now, is this... I don't mean to stop you, because I haven't seen this movie, but is this the infamous A, B, B C, C... Okay, D, yeah, great. Yeah, where great. he just loses it on his secretary who has lost... Uh, I can't even remember what she's lost. It's not worth remembering. But, uh, you know, he goes, he goes off on her about how hard is it to file something. Oh, no, he's not even talking to her. He's talking to his therapist. The therapist plays a, a huge role in this film. This, oh, dude, don't... I have no idea. It's, it's nuts. Again, something. No, I mean, should, I haven't seen it. I, it, it don't look to me for help. On yeah, this. I'm not going to. Uh, it's it's just he actually. I think I remember very vaguely. Nick Cage talks about how he thinks this is his greatest performance, which should give you a little insight into where his mind is at on a daily basis. Uh, he's he's a he works for a publishing firm, and he has a, a night of, of passionate lovemaking where the woman bites him, and it's kind of. Uh, it's kind of ambiguous as to whether she is a vampire or not. And so he, he believes that he is a vampire. It's the other one with that infamous scene of him running down the street screaming, I'm a vampire! I'm a vampire! <laughs> he, he does, and he does weird things with his voice in the movie, like accents. Like, the voice that he does is supposed to be that, like, really, like, uppity Wall Street type. Like, it's just, it's, I imagine it's where Christian Bale took a lot of his uh, inspiration for American Psycho. Okay. Yeah, it's just a nuts little piece of 80s cheese, which is just not aged well at all. I think this is probably going to be what stops me in the... I've had enough of Cage for a while. This is this is the, if you will, the steak in my uh, Cage expedition. Uh, is Now, would you say... Because I've, I've seen the ABCD clip. Yeah. Um, my guess is that I've, I've, I've seen that clip. I don't need to see the movie. Is that fair? No, because... He does actually do some incredible things in it. Oh, God. 
there's a there's a sequence towards the end where he's like out in the sunlight and he's dragging this piece of pallet he broke off a piece of a pallet that he's trying to stake himself with and he's like walking down the street all lethargic moaning at nobody in particular and then he has a full-on conversation with a brick wall oh man it's it's a master class in some kind of acting. I'm not going to sure. call it good acting. See, I've taken master classes with Glenn Close and Meryl Streep. I don't think I need to take the Nick Cage master class. I think I'm okay. You don't think you'd be a better actor for it? I don't. <laughs> At all. Well, let's, if you have a chance to see the movie, watch it, and we'll see if you, you uh, reassess that sentiment. Okay, well, I'm going to recommend a movie that is actually good. <laughs> and I, I have not discussed this with Ian, so I have no idea if he's seen it or not, but uh, my wife and I recently watched The Raid, Oh, yeah. Uh, Korean film. Yeah. That's really good. That movie is fantastic. And it's just relentless. Exactly. And and so plot-wise, it's really actually really easy to describe. This sort of uh, SWAT team of uh, Korean police officers is going to take down this drug lord, murderous kingpin in his sort of high-rise apartment building that he basically controls. And the cops get in. They get a couple floors up. The drug lord is made aware that they're there. And it's basically the few cops outnumbered by the many of the tenants who are all kind of drug dealers. And they basically try to escape. The fighting is insane. Like, it's not realistic, but that doesn't matter. It's so choreographed and so well done and well shot. It is... There's two shots that are so great where the cops are hiding. One of them fires a gun and the the film slows down and the muzzle fire lights up the room and there's 10 guys on the floor above them and they get enough light from the gunfire that they see where they are and they just start annihilating them. That's one shot. And then, um, oh, there's a shot where they're, the two cops are hiding in this like three foot compartment behind a wall because they're hiding from the guys looking for them. And one of our, one of the bad guys is like slamming a machete through the wall and he, when he finally stops, he's grazed this guy's cheek. And, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember machete that. And machete is just stuck, like, right in the wall and on his cheek. It's, I mean, there's a sequel that I haven't seen that I kind of want to, only because this one was so good. I, I've i actually heard the second one is just as good. I've heard, yeah, so here's the thing. If you're looking for a John Wick-esque movie where the plot's really simple and you're really watching it for the, the creative fight choreography... Watch this movie. It's, it's one of the it's, better ones in recent memory. Yeah, it's really good. I, I cannot actually recommend this movie enough. Go and, see it. And I was, I saw it fairly close to that remake that they did of, of Judge Dredd, the one with Carl. And the only reason I watched it is because I like Carl Urban. And Dredd pretty much ripped it off entirely, both that, in plot and in a, and some of the shots. That and is what I've heard. Frustrating to watch. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's garbage. They should just leave. We've had Carl Urban and we've had Sliced Alone. We should just leave Dread alone, I think, at this point. Yeah, I'm fine with that. Yeah, me too. So cool. We're on to this week's episode. And you know what? I usually sort of say what the title is, but I don't have the connection with this film that my lovely co-host does. So, Ian. Well, that's very nice of you to, to call me lovely. I appreciate that. Of course. I didn't know you felt that way. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Halloween is what we're so we're doing a special uh, sort of tie-in episode uh, this week is going to see the release of uh, Blumhouse's sort of soft reboot of Halloween so, so when I say soft reboot they're kind of doing away with the seven sequels that followed and, you know and obviously ignoring the the Rob Zombie remakes and all of that other stuff and we are going to be a full-on 40 years after the fact this is now do or die 
Michael Myers versus Laurie Strode. And you know, we, the trailer sort of shows you that she hasn't gotten over it and she's been preparing for his return for the last you know, four decades or mm-hmm. so. And her family, of course, are going to get there in the mix. And uh, it's, just, it's exciting to see somebody really care about this franchise and wanting to reinvigorate it. Uh, it's being directed by David Gordon Green, uh, who is responsible for one of my favorite uh, TV comedies in recent memory, Vice Principals on HBO, which uh, starred Danny McBride, and Danny McBride uh, wrote uh, this new sequel, and I believe is producing it as well. David uh, Gordon Green has a really interesting yeah, he's filmography. Kinda, he's kind of got one of those Soderbergh uh, filmographies where it's kind of like one... One for him. One for... Yeah, that, yeah. Did you see Prince Avalanche? No, I don't think I've even heard of that one. That's got... Uh, I'm not a big Paul Rudd fan, but it's about... It's got Paul Rudd and Emil Hirsch, and they play two guys who spend uh, the summer repainting uh, the the lines on a on a road. And it's I'm not gonna say it's gonna you know knock your socks off, but it was a it's a good little it's a good little indie flick. I mean, well, well, and so and so yeah, he has that, and he has uh, George Washington, which is also um, an indie flick like that. Yeah, but then he's also the guy that did Pineapple Express. Which is just infuriating to watch. Well, whatever. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah, a lot of those, the, the Seth Rogen stuff, that doesn't do it for me. But it's, it's nice to see that somebody is able, like Soderbergh, is able to balance that one-for-you-one-for-me thing and actually make a really great career out of it. And this, this new sequel is being produced by Blumhouse, who are becoming quite the powerhouse when yeah. it comes to... You know, this new age of horror with, you know, the found footage stuff like Paranormal Activity and The Purge. They also produce Whiplash. Awesome. Which is one of, it was oh. my favorite film of 2014. Same here. It's such a great, it's like the Rocky of, you know, jazz drumming films. Oh, so good. Let's not, let's not, because I could just go off on. We, we yeah. could probably sit here all night and talk Whiplash, yeah. and I, I wouldn't have a problem with it. Yeah, but we're not. No, we're here to talk about one of the greatest slasher films ever made this is your first time seeing it right first time seeing it all the way through yes this is i mean obviously it's called halloween it's on all the time around halloween but i this was never a movie that i actually i would say the same thing about nightmare on elm street and friday the 13th i've never actually taken the movie put it in to play it all the way through i've always caught it on television so i any of those movies i don't think i've seen all the way through from start to finish I've seen the beginnings, I've seen the endings, so any, like, spoilers or what, like, I, I get what happens at the end right. of any of those movies. But this was the first attempt at just sitting down and going, you know what, Melissa and I, we're going to open a bottle of wine and we're going to watch Halloween. That's That was our night, and so that's what we did. Um, was it a night that was worth it? It was. I'm going to be cheekily vague right now about that, but it absolutely was a, it was a, it was a good night watching the movie. Yes. That's cool, man. Ian? I've seen it... <sighs> Again, like Stand by Me, probably about fifteen times or so. I I have I have an an odd on again off again relationship with horror films. Um, I kind of ruined horror films for myself at a really young age. So this is one of the three films that I credit as ruining horror films for me. So the three, in a good way. No, not necessarily because okay. people when they when they go to see horror films, I mean the intention is to get. That, that sense of being frightened, right? Horror films, like, they don't do anything for me on an emotional level. And so I find that I'm really overly critical of them because I'm not getting out of it, you know, that, that scare factor. I mean, I, I essentially broke myself when I was about 12. I watched this, The Exorcist, and the one that people find interesting, Cube, 
the three of those back to back kind of broke oh, Jesus. horror film yeah. for me. And like I, I scared myself so stupid that everything after it really got the noise turned down a lot. Okay. I went straight to eleven and then all the way back down. Got it. Like horror films just don't do anything for me on an emotional level. And like I said, that makes me really overly critical of them. Sure. Like I don't get anything out of, you know, stuff like The Purge or Saw or, you know, any of that. I don't they don't elicit an emotional response from me. Sure. And and those and those movies are those are interesting to you because they're so about the gore. Right, and that gets into something different. Yeah, then you get yeah. into that subgenre of like torture porn, torture porn which yeah. is just nauseating. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't give any credence to them at all. But yeah, no, so Halloween kind of has a special place in my heart because it, it essentially broke me. And so now I expect a certain level of quality from horror films, which you don't get there. I mean, there are so. It's, it's probably the, the, other than, than dramas, it's probably the most produced genre of films. And so you've got to wade through a lot of garbage to get something good. And for me, that usually means going further back in time than, giving, than paying attention to a lot of new stuff. Sure. So I would put this right up there with you know, something like Psycho and Texas Chainsaw as far as that subgenre of slasher films. Texas Chainsaw is actually my favorite slasher film of all time. Well, and, s- and Halloween is a close second. Speaking of Psycho... Um, I want to I want to read part of this review from Roger Ebert because and I'm I'm surprised that Roger Ebert loved this movie. Yeah, he's very critical of horror films or, so, or was. I'm going to read the first part of it and then I'm going to cut to the end. So, at the start of his original review from Halloween in 1979, he says uh, he actually he opens with a quote from Hitchcock who says, "I enjoy playing the audience like a piano." So does John Carpenter. Halloween is an absolutely merciless thriller, a movie so violent and scary that, yes, I would compare it to Psycho. It's a terrifying and creepy film about one of the characters calls evil personified. Right. And that leads us to one small piece of the plot I'm going to describe, and then he talks about the opening of the movie. That's all I'm going to describe, because Halloween is a visceral experience. We aren't seeing the movie, we're having it happen to us. It's frightening. Maybe you don't like movies that are really scary, then don't see this one. And then he ends this review by saying, We see movies for a lot of reasons. Sometimes we want to be amused. Sometimes we want to escape. Sometimes we want to laugh or cry or see sunsets. And sometimes we want to be scared. I'll be clear about this. If you don't want to have a really terrifying experience, don't see Halloween. And that's that's really high praise. It really is. Yeah, um, you, you couldn't you couldn't recommend the movie highly enough with any other sentiment. Yeah, but um, was it Pauline Kale of uh, the Village Voice? Or yeah, I think she writes. She obliterated oh, this movie. Well, of course she, she does. hated it. So, anyways, it's just just kind of fun. Um, we haven't talked much about the actual movie though. So it's directed by John Carpenter, who is very famous for his collaborations with Kurt Russell. Yeah, they did a bunch of movies together, and including the Thing remake. The well, the Thing, which is the only other John Carpenter. Uh, Film in the book, which is another one I can't wait, wait to get to. Yeah, it's, yeah, me too. it's such a great uh, mashup of sci-fi and horror. Yeah, although I do, I do think it's okay. B- before we even get into the movie, do you think that John Carpenter knew that in a few years he was going to be directing it? Because I think it's so funny that they're watching the thing in Halloween. That, from what I've read and from what I remember hearing interviews with Carpenter, is that yeah, no, that had been a long gestating thing. Like he had wanted to do the thing for years. Okay, cool. Because because I. Because, like I said, I never sat down to watch Halloween. Yeah, and that's all a the great way little through. detail there. And I and think so, Forbidden Planet is one of the other films, or Fantastic Voyage, one of those two classic sci-fi films. Yeah, yeah. 
But just, but just that you know, because I saw the thing first, yeah, and then ah, uh, John Carpenter, you, that sneaky little bastard, yeah, you cheeky, you cheeky guy, you. And he's also known for you know these types of films, a lot of low budget sort of B movie horror films, which uh, I saw one of his a couple of years ago that really blew me away. A film he did in '93 uh, or so with Sam Neill called In the Mouth of Madness. I haven't seen it. Uh, it's. It's a great Sam Neill performance. Cool. Right as he was about to, you know, you know, he'd been working for years. He was but well known that in Australia. piano Jurassic Park. Yeah, yeah, he was yeah. right about to explode nice. in, the, in the popular zeitgeist. And it was written by Carpenter and his producing partner Deborah Hill. The name Haddonfield actually comes from her hometown, Haddonfield, New Jersey. It was a fun little piece of trivia there for you. And the way that I understand it too is that Deborah Hill wrote wrote a lot of the babysitting stuff. Right, based and, on her own experiences. Yeah, and Carpenter wrote the Loomis stuff. Yeah. Okay. And it's, it, it creates a really nice balance. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Without feeling like it's two separate movies. Right. Which is nice. Because that could have been really easy to do, especially when you've got two distinct voices yeah. working on two very different parts of the film. Yeah. Uh, on Rotten Tomatoes, it's sitting at a 93, and the audience score isn't far behind it, 89%. Yeah. Uh, it's another film that we're always going to have because it was selected to the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress in 2006. Yep. Uh, but no, like... And that, and the, the, the film registry thing is great, but no, at, at the time, no accolades, no awards. No, it wasn't that well, kind it's, of a film. It's not that kind of film, exactly. Um, but it did a nice little return. Uh, thank you for bringing that up, because that was the next thing I was going to say. About the same budget as a previous episode, Badlands. Badlands was made for about 300000 so was Halloween. So this shows you how much you can do and world, that little... Worldwide? Do you have the number? $70 million. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. It, it certainly made sure that, that uh, John Carpenter was going to keep working. Well, and it gives... That's hope, man. Yeah. That's aw- like if this teeny tiny little slasher flick can yeah. go out and make $70 million, I mean, that's got a really and I, I think it did pave the way for the thing to happen, which is great. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. So let's uh, just we're already kind of we're already in it, but let's let's keep talking about it. So, I am going to nitpick the hell out of this movie. I fully expected you to. And not because I didn't like it, because I did. There are just things about this movie having actually sat down to watch it in its entirety that I'm I'm fascinated with in a kind of horrible way. So I want to how how quickly did you did you clock that that isn't actually middle America and that they are in California? Did you see the palm trees in the background? I, I did. Isn't that great? And but, it's clearly not fall at all. Like the half-assed attempt to sort of blow some dead leaves around. Well, Carpenter even calls it out in his commentary, which is great. I think when it when it really hit for me, like when it really hit home for me, is um, a little, little personal history. Uh, my wife and I lived in Indiana for three years while I was going to grad school. And it's a totally different climate out there. The winters are winters. Yeah. It's cold. And so I can tell you that on October 31st, in any given year... Your windows are not open. It might not be as cold as it's going to get, but you are by no means have your windows open, letting the gentle fall breeze roll in. Your windows are shut. Yeah. So all of those scenes with the window open and the curtains blowing in the wind, I was like, no. I don't I don't care if it's sunny outside. It's not warm enough to keep those damn windows open. Yeah. Um, but that was the only way the film was going to get made. There was no way that they were picking up an entire film crew and heading out to Indiana. I mean, you would have... Tri- Illinois is where the 
film takes place. Oh, is, is it? Illinois? Yeah, oh, yeah, it is. Right. But I'm just, I, it's right next door. Yeah. I'm just giving you my Midwest experience. Yeah. There's no way in hell the windows are going right. to be open. Well, it, to, to go all the way out there, I mean, I'm just, I'm estimating, but I'm sure it would have tripled the budget at least. Oh, probably. And they only had um, Donald Pleasance for, what was it, five days? Yeah. Yeah. Which uh, I, so they, for Loomis, which he's a great character and he's got a couple of really fantastic speeches. I mean, I love the whole sentiment about, you know, I watched this child and you, I saw him looking at the wall, looking through the wall, looking to tonight. I mean, that's, that really does a good job of building well, the dread and, and building the idea of the boogeyman. I spent the was like I spent the first however many years trying to get him out, and, and spent then, the last however many trying to keep him in. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a really great. So we you talked about having seen bits and pieces of it on TV. It was a really big deal getting this film onto TV. Um, they paid who was it? It was uh, either ABC or NBC. They paid something like NBC. Excuse me. They paid three million dollars for the rights to get this thing on TV, which is an incredible sum of money yeah. back in 1980 or 81 when it premiered on TV. And they really, they wanted to get the running time a little bit longer. You know, they wanted to get it out to a full two hours because the film is barely 90 minutes. Yeah, 92, And uh, there's a, a, there are a couple 91. of scenes that they shot with Donald Pleasance, which are really good, which I really wish were in the theatrical cut. Like, there's a scene with him flashing back and talking to a young Michael saying, you've got them fooled but you don't have me fooled. It's a really intense moment that it's, it's such a shame that it's a throwaway thing that they just shot for the TV version. In that shot that you're talking about, do we do we see Michael's face? I, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but I don't believe so. Okay, because that, for me, that would have been a... That would have killed it. Yeah. yeah. And you do see Michael's face very briefly oh, at the end, which is no, cool I, to I see that he has a very child, a very round features, a very childlike face, There's a, but there's still that... There's something demented in it. that actor. I think Nick Castle. There's Nick Castle he... is the guy who plays the thing with the mask on. That's not oh. Nick Castle's face when it comes up. It's somebody else. Do, oh, do you know the name of the actor? No. Oh, this is where we I failed. I don't. Oh, the whole podcast is over. We failed. But Nick Castle gets most of the credit for right, it. Right, right. Because yeah. he is. He plays essentially the shape. Yeah, the shape. They, right. Oh, I, and I did. I, I didn't realize that. I, I mean, I got this when I was watching the the making of. That yeah. that's how it was referred to. I'd never heard that before. Yeah, which is great. Yeah, so building the the uh, ambiguity of his character. But yeah, Loomis, it's a fantastic performance. It's a better performance than the film almost really deserves. You know, because it's just a little B movie slasher flick. It doesn't deserve to have somebody as good as Donald Pleasance in it. And what what's fascinating to me is who they went to originally. So I am a huge Hammer horror fan. The, the, the British House of, of Hammer, the movies that they were making in the 50s, 60s, and, and for some of the 70s as well. And the two icons, the two people you immediately think of when you think of Hammer, are Peter Cushing, which most people will know as Tarkin from the Star Wars movies, and Christopher Lee, which again, most people listening to this will know him as either Dooku from Star Wars or, or, Lord of the Rings. or Saruman from Lord of the Rings. But those guys were household names in Britain in the the 50s, 60s, and 70s because of the work that they did with Hammer, and they actually went to both of them. Cushing just turned it down flat, but Christopher Lee later in life said it was the biggest mistake of his career. I read that too. And that's infuriating. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love the Donald Pleasance performance that we have, but imagine what that film could have been with Christopher Lee with that tall gaunt, that long stride that he has, that deathly stare, that, that, that stare of just being able to... Christopher Lee had one of those thousand-yard stares where he could just stare through you. And that probably has something to do with his... I won't 
digress too far into into his history, but his military background and, and things like that and working for uh, Churchill's League of Bastards or whatever they called them, you know, the guys who were undercover doing that work. I mean, there's a great anecdote. I will digress a little bit. There's a great anecdote from the set of Lord of the Rings where Peter Cushing, uh, Peter Jackson, excuse me, says to Christopher Lee, you know, in the scene where he's going to get his throat cut in the extended version and fall off of the tower. Or no, he doesn't get his throat cut. He gets stabbed in the back. And he's like, well, okay, so this is what's going to happen. I want you to make this sound. And Christopher Lee leans in very gently and says, you don't have to tell me what a man getting stabbed in the back sounds like. That's one of my favorite film anecdotes ever. That's a good one. Because Peter Cushing, uh, it's a, I keep saying Cushing, because Peter Jackson's reaction was just to walk away very slowly. <laughs> <laughs> not, not turning his back on Christopher Lee. <laughs> Smart. Yeah. Dear listeners, I, I am afraid that I might be about to offend my friend here. And I intentionally didn't look up the answer to this question because I wanted to ask I wanted to ask Ian, and I think he's about to get mad at me. So here we go. Was Donald Pleasance a big deal? Because He he certainly was in in my understanding of, of him and his filmography, I mean he has a huge filmography, I mean, and he was he what he's known for at least to my generation who are into films and maybe the generation ahead of me is uh, playing the forger who goes blind in The Great Escape. Okay, which I haven't seen yet. Yeah. The Steve McQueen one, right? That's Steve McQueen. Okay. Yeah, huge, I mean, the cast. Well, yeah, it does go massive. massive ensemble. Yeah. But that, that to me is what he's known for. He's also very famous for having been the first actor... He wasn't the first actor to play Blofeld in the James Bond films, but he was the first one where we actually saw his face... In uh, You Only Live Twice in the big volcano lair and okay. the, the cat in his lap and the, the eye scar and things like that. Just because, you know, you know, when I was watching the documentary, or one, I'm sure there's many making up documentaries for this movie, but, like, you know, they kept talking about, oh, it's such, a, such an honor, such a treat, such a, you know, to get Donald Pleasance to do this movie. And I, I was legit like, was well, it? And, that, and that's just one of those things where you, you have a young American crew who have grown up you know, probably watching some of those older British horror films and to get somebody like that. That's a big get to get. You know, you got turned down by Peter Cushing, you got turned down by Christopher Lee, but you still got Donald Pleasance. You know, and he is, I mean, that's probably what, that's going to be my guess is what they knew him for was Blofeld in the Bond movies. Well, and I think probably now it's this. Right. This is this is probably what everybody's But honestly, I I mean I couldn't have I couldn't have put him to anything. I'm not right. the biggest Bond fan and I have yet to see The Great Escape, which I own and haven't seen and I know I will. But well, well it, we'll get that's a, a great episode that we can yeah. do. I'm very excited. That's a once a year film for me. Yeah. Uh, and that was that's not a negative against Donald Pleasance. I just I was just curious cuz well, I, I well, I, and I'm not surprised yeah. that you know, he's not a household name. Sure. Um, so, okay, I want to nitpick this. That Halloween pumpkin at the opening of the movie is so bad. It's so bad. Well, don't let John Carpenter hear you say that. The the actual pumpkin. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's it's awful. It's awful. <laughs> why Why is it awful? Because it just, it almost, because the movie is scary. Yeah. And it almost makes me feel like I'm about to see something that's kind of cheesy. Now. But put yourself in 1978. Where very few slasher films have been made. Sure. But I, I, I don't associate jack-o'-lanterns with, like, anything evil, necessarily. I associate them with Halloween. I get that. Yeah, yeah. But I don't need it. I mean, the title of your movie is Halloween. I don't need a jack-o'-lantern next to it to realize that we're going to be talking about Halloween. But it's, it's for me, it's so iconic. Like, that, that opening with zooming in on the pumpkin. It's, I can't I, separate it what's from... What's iconic, though, is that score. Yeah. 
I mean, it's very it's very psycho like. It's very Jaws like with that very simple repeating, yep. building tension, it's, building dread. It's good. Yeah, and, it's good. And it's Carpenter's score. And what's yep. really exciting to me about the new one coming out is he's working on the score for that as oh, well. Oh, good, good. I thought you, I thought you were going to mention how quickly he put this. Score oh no, together. and he did. What did he put it together in like three days? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So to to knock something that iconic out of the park that quickly, which which I was saying too. I mean, I, I understand being on a time crunch and having to do it, and I've I've heard other movies do that too, but like something that is this it's on that Jaws level it's on that Star Wars level I mean it's one of those scores you hear it's like oh yeah Halloween yeah Halloween that's what I'm listening to that's what I I got it Laurie's friends suck I'm just gonna put it out there wait 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 totally does, does she have friends because they just use the shit out of her. Oh yeah, in this movie. Yeah, absolutely. They're oh hey, terrible will, you, people. will you watch the kid I'm supposed to be babysitting so I can go get laid? Because yeah. I'd really like it if you could do this. Yeah, okay, didn't, thanks. Didn't, didn't we all have that friend? Though? I'm sorry. Did I say that she asked? I think she just brought her over. Yeah, I don't she, think like, she even drops asked. Lindsay off and then buggers off. Yeah, her those friends of hers are yeah or something. And okay, and we mentioned earlier that the script was written, but it was John Carpenter and Deborah Hill. I think Deborah Hill stuff is not very good. I don't think it's very good. I don't. I don't really like the dialogue. I hate. I think the gir- the women's the friends banter with each other is just awful. It's fairly two dimensional. And that's and and you mentioned and again you mentioned how good the Donald Pleasance monologues are. They're they're really good. Yeah, they're it's, really good. It's better than the movie deserves. Yeah, yeah. It, it, oh, I just said they were. And the whole sequence. There's a great tracking shot in the graveyard where they go to find that the gravestone has yes. been stolen. Yeah. Yeah. That that again. It's a, that's like. This is better than what should be in this movie. This is better than what you should be able to buy for three hundred grand. It's well, and and again, think about how much this movie was made for. You start, we talk. We usually talk about best shots of the movie. I know, and I know there was cuts, but that opening, the opening tracking shot, yeah, yeah. is awesome. Yeah, no, and it was one of the first times. A steady cam. Yeah, yeah. One of the first times that you you got that POV thing. It's very uh, you know, Carpenter and De Palma were kind of like the first ones to tap into, at least here in the states, anyway. Sure. To tap into that, you know, let's go behind the eyes of of the killer and let's see what they see. And I really and I thought the cuts. Was it three cuts or two cuts? I think it's two. And the one where the mask go is going on. That one's fairly obvious. Obvious, but like a good. Like, of course you have to cut. You're not really putting a mask for the camera. So, yeah. like, that was... I, I remember watching it and it said, slick cut. Yeah. Slick cut. I was actually like, yeah, that's good. That's good. You had yeah. to cut sometime. That's perfect. Yeah. And again, better than the... Not film deserves, but, like, that's that's better than a $300,000 budget movie. Yeah, no, that really that's, shows the intuition and, you know, just how innovative Carpenter was yeah. at the time. Another nitpick. So, the young boy, um, young Michael Myers, has stabbed his older sister. He goes outside... His parents take off his mask. his mask, and they're standing outside. Uh, I don't think the mom cares, because she literally has her hands in her pocket and looks at this kid so like, okay, yeah. And and I get that they might not know what's happened, but and maybe it's a really small thing, but you she should have looks... had like you should have had the mom like going nuts and running into the house. Well, yeah. Or Why something. is nobody doing that? Yeah. I again nitpicks. You know what Liz's nitpick was about that scene? The size of the knife. Oh, it's yeah, it's huge. Yeah. It's the knife is like almost as big as he is. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, who has a who has a knife that big, man? Well, that, thing, that thing's insane. You don't just have that in, in an everyday kitchen. You don't. You do you not have a knife set. 
No, I do have a knife set, but what I'm talking about is the kid is what, like three foot tall, and the knife well, is almost two feet tall. Well, compared to him, yeah, sure, I, yeah, it's 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 it looks ridiculous as compared to him, but not, not, the size of the it, knife it, didn't bother. It's me. a ridiculous, bro. It didn't bother me either. Oh, okay. There you go. But this this is I'm Liz is speaking vicariously sure. through me about sure. how much she hates. She's like that knife is ridiculous. Nobody has a knife that big. Melissa and I agreed on the the the, the totally girl. Yeah. Oh, PJ Souls. Oh, yeah. Jesus. Totally. And see, and I, that's the thing is like I'm nitpicking this movie because there are things that I just the the dialogue back and forth between some of the women, her friends in general, the fact that it's 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 fall almost winter in the Midwest and we got windows open. It, that's those are those are nitpick things. But when the movie is on, it's on, yeah. and it's funny because I'd seen so many. I'd seen the end in the closet. I'd seen the part with the boyfriend getting lifted up and, and stabbed. While we're on that, that's my favorite shot of. Of Bob just hanging there with the knife in him, and, and I, I'd even seen the upstairs when he ends up in the with the the, the sheet I, I, over him. It's such an iconic shot. I had never seen the car moment. Oh, that's great! And it that that's what Roger Ebert is talking about with the visceral experience. When she has to go back for the keys, and she comes back and opens it. She even there's that moment of realization, like like wait, the door's not locked. Yeah, dude, that was really good. Yeah. That was. And I'm it's all, super subtle, too. I'm so bummed that I hadn't ever seen this movie in its entirety before because, like, the shock of him stabbing the boyfriend up against the wall and, and like, the, 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 um, the tombstone reveal. And so I, that's yeah, a, the dog scene as well for me. Yeah. It was where... Because uh, I think he kills two dogs in the movie. The one of them you don't see. It's where they go to the house and there's the dead dog in the house and he's like, oh, he got hungry. That's so good. It's it's it may be a little too on the nose, but it's it really for me it helps build the dread of of this boogeyman character. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's funny. I I totally not totally. Un, un, uh, I but I did I, I totally ruined the movie going experience by never having seen it in its entirety all the way through before. But you know now that I have it's it's I mean it is it's a good movie. It's entertaining. Yeah. It's a slasher film that I, I keep coming back to. I said earlier that my favorite one was Texas Chainsaw, but I can't watch Texas Chainsaw as much as I could watch. And when I say that, I'm talking about the original Toby Hooper one from 1974. Yeah. Uh, but that's that's not just something you pop in and idly watch. Well, exactly. I mean, you might you might include that in your Halloween playlist of, it's, of films. But it's relentless. That film is just ungodly relentless. And we'll get to it because it's in the book. Well, and this brings up, a question that I, and I'm I'm, I'm no I, I can't always prove this this point and I I think I've actually actually this before but I'm I'll bring it up, kind of to a larger audience with the podcast, which is, how do we define a horror movie and is that, the presence of a super is that a supernatural element to it because the thing about this movie, that it's not a nitpick, and I and I guess I don't know where I land on it is. Michael Myers is referred to as as evil personified. He is this, which is this crazy thing where you know we we see we see this young kid kill his sister for motives that we don't aren't entirely sure of, and then he comes he, he escapes the the mental institution that he's he's in and he goes on this this spree of killing people, killing babysitters. Well, he's trying to he's and that's another thing that they hammered home in the TV version because when Loomis goes into his into his his cell he sees the word sister scratched 
in the wall. Which would have probably been another. I mean, we I think we get it when he steals the headstone. Right. But he, he it's like he can't be killed. And but he is human. And so right cuz Lori puts him down, you know, and she stabs him in the throat with the By the way, or, by the way, or the eye or whatever. Why would she keep dro- Okay, I'm okay. I'm going to swear. I'm going to swear and I'm sorry. Why does she keep dropping the fucking knife? She repeatedly <laughs> yeah. drops that knife and and by the third time I wanted her to die because Well that's the just, that's the trope of the horror movie. I don't it? give a shit. <laughs> I don't I I I Oh, she, I'm not excusing. She drops it. it so many times and I'm like you are an idiot. Yeah. And I'll just take a I'll just sit here on the steps with we'll no knife breath. in my hand. Yeah. And really, really think, like, really, really delve deep into everything that's just happened and not get out of the... Yeah, that's that's the, like I said, that's the trope. Yeah, it's it's every horror movie. Why are you running upstairs instead of out of the house? And, I know. Uh, one of the other really great pieces of trivia that some people probably know, maybe they don't, uh, the mask is oh, actually yeah. a Captain Kirk mask that they bought for less than $2. And it, what a find. And what a way that they spray-painted it white cut the eye holes a little bigger and Tease messed up the, the hair. hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a... And to make something that iconic out of $2, it's incredible. I also... I, well, I heard later that, that Shatner didn't know that for a long time. Yeah. And that when he found out, he was, like, honored. Wouldn't you be? I don't know. Because <laughs> that mask, really, I, I, in its final phase, looks nothing like Shatner. No. I, I don't see any resemblance to him at all. So to... to I mean, I I I think, oh, that's cool because it's become such an iconic thing. But part of me would be like, Jesus, I, I don't look like that, do I? Yeah, right. <laughs> that's off. I look <laughs> awful. Uh, we talked about my favorite shot. Do you have a favorite shot? That track. Oh, the the tracking shot. Oh, the the, I, the POV. Yeah, stuff. I think that's just. Uh, I mean, to a very bad Brian De Palma movie, but a guilty pleasure of all guilty pleasures since we've been on this cage hit is Snake Eyes. It's so good. And that, I know, that's, that's one that I did watch on rewatch on my cage expedition. And my and I know that that opening shot is not one cut or is not one take. I know that there's a couple of cuts in there, but for me it's I still appreciate the slickness of it. Yeah. And I feel that same way about um the opening shot of Halloween. I I just think it's it's so well done, not just in in its execution of the editing and the cuts, but also the idea, the the POV aspect of it. It's yeah. really creepy. It's really, really creepy. Yeah. And when this movie isn't bogged down by awful dialogue and, and shitty best friends, when it's when it when it's got the horror stuff going, yeah. it's good. The end is especially good, where uh, you know she says, "Was that the boogeyman?" And he says, "I'm afraid it was." And then you have the the cuts to all the places he's been. That's over the good. course of the night with the breathing. Yeah. That's inspired. Well, and so Donald Pleasance talked to John Carpenter about when he when he goes to look over the railing at the end and he sees that the body isn't there. He asked him, should I look surprised or should I look like I always knew this was going to happen? And Carpenter said, we'll do it both ways. And which way do you think they kept? The, the one where he always knew. Yeah. And that's, the, that's 100% the right choice. Yeah. Because Loomis knows. I mean, the whole movie, he's talked about how evil this boy is. Yeah. So he should know. He should know that he's maybe he'll accomplish something, but chances are he won't. He should always have that doubt in the back of his mind. But like, it, I'm not going to succeed here tonight. And it brings back this idea of, I think the hardest thing for me, so, yeah, there's the nitpicks that are just like, come on, yeah, whatever. And then there's the parts of it that are really, really good. And where I find myself thinking is, is about the character of Michael Myers and... You know, to survive how many stabbings and falling off of a of a second second story balcony 
I mean, I, I realize that it, it's possible to survive that, but is he human? That's what I, I mean. Well, they, they deal with that in some of the sequels. I haven't seen them all. I've seen a, I've seen a couple of them. And I think in one of them, like five or six, they deal with the fact that he is being controlled by a cult. Like they try to really hammer it home and explain Ooh. why and who and how, which is just don't do that. It's the same thing that they did with the, the Hannibal Lecter prequel where they show him as a young man and why he eats people. Oh, the the, the one that wasn't based off of a book, right? Well, uh, or was it? Thomas Harris wrote the screenplay and the book simultaneously. Oh, okay. So, so I mean, not, it was not, just, it was a it was a senseless cash. Was grab. it Hannibal Rising? Is that Hannibal what it was called? Rising. Okay, yeah, I never saw it. Oh, it's so bad. The the young kid that plays a, um, a a European actor, he might be French. He does pretty good. I mean, he's no Brian Cox. He's no. Um, yeah, yeah and that's right. I said I said Brian Cox first because he's the original. Chronologically, that's correct. Yeah, and he didn't win an Oscar for it. But well, he's the better one in my mind. But we don't have. We'll open that can of worms when we deal with the Signs of the Lambs episode. Is Manhunter in? It might be. Ooh, that, ooh, Maybe we should do those back that's to a, back. We, we should, should do, do it the same damn episode. Yeah, we should do. That's a, a good one. Do a double feature. Yeah, yeah, I like it. Yeah, the, the the same thing they do with Hannibal Rising, where you know they show who and why and how. You know, he eats people because you know his his sister was eaten by cannibals, and so it's a, it's a case yeah, of like don't re- do that. yeah, no, don't do that. We don't need that. I like to show don't tell. I really appreciate well, movies that you're, do that. You're undercutting years of storytelling and years of building this iconic character. We don't. I think deep down inside, we don't want to know why. Y- yeah, I would agree with that because that that takes away from the mytho it takes away from why they're scary this has been my argument for years with you know, the fact that they do too many sequels to horror you really drive home the point again of who and how and why like you're you're, you're killing it just leave it yeah I mean I know I said I'm struggling with that idea of you know is he human or not but I'm also not mad that I don't know I that's just that's one of those things I'm left with asking is is We've gone through all this. Is he? Is he? A, I mean, you know, we saw this kid as a, was he six years six years old, right? Yeah, he, and that and that's a funny continuity error, actually, by the way, because it's directly fifteen years later. If anybody wants to go along and do the math with me, six and and fifteen is twenty one, and in the credits they call him out as being Michael, age twenty three. Oh, good. Ooh, I didn't know. I didn't. Yeah, there you there go. There you go. Another piece of useless trivia for you. Hey, if we do nothing else, did you guys not have calculators in seventy eight? Come on. No, no, they didn't. They, they still, barely, they barely had protractors. They still had like abacuses. Yes, they did. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, but those big crank machines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody was basically doing math on a cash register. That's right. basically what it was. <laughs> One of my last things I want to, I want to bring up. I do love, I do love that they're listening to "Don't Fear the Reaper" when they're being oh, stalked no, by. It's not I, so good. I do like that was that was a cheeky like ah I love there it. There it is. I love it. Ah, they got jokes. I started smiling, and Melissa goes, "Why are you smiling?" I go, "They're playing Don't Fear the Reaper right now." I can't. I just that's great. I like that scene with, with them smoking the joint, and it turns out that one of the girls' dads is like a sheriff, the sheriff. and he leans into the car. Like, come on, man, you can smell that. Yeah, that's there. That's some yeah. dank weed. You're yeah. gonna be smelling that. That's that's some you know, that's some terrible 1978 you know, shitty grown in the backyard dirt weed. You're gonna smell that stuff, man. So we've definitely. I, I feel like I, I feel like I definitely know the answer to this, Ian. Do you feel like Halloween should be in this book? I do, because it, it's one of the the progenitor. Uh, it's it's one of the original sort of slasher flicks. It's 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 above average. I mean, it's got a great use of lighting. It's got the iconic score. 
it's got that sort of foreboding boogeyman character, and the Donald Pleasance performance, like we said, is is better than the film deserves. You know who we haven't talked about? That was Jamie Lee. Just very true. I mean, because this was this was typecasting for her for years. She got stuck playing these kind of scream queen roles for That's true. a while, and it wasn't until Trading Places in '83, and I'm having the Jamie Kennedy moment in Scream. And it wasn't until you know she got naked in Trading yeah. Places. I I do. I, I kind of loved that John Carpenter and Deborah Hill just sort of came out and said, yeah, we we also like that she was the daughter of the person in Psycho. I love that they just yeah. kind of were like, yeah, that didn't that didn't hurt her chances of getting cast in oh, this. Oh, absolutely. I thought that was, I, thought, I mean, and you know, at least you're honest about it, yeah. you know. Uh, the other thing that they I found that they rejected was the idea of dealing with like a, a deeper, like people looking into the film on a deeper level, like Michael only kill he tries to kill Laurie and can't succeed because she's virginal. You know, she's she's untainted, whereas the people that he does kill are all promiscuous, and they completely rejected that notion, but I think that's people probably looking too much into it. Well, I also like that, I mean, do you know what the original title of the script was? Uh, the Babysitter Killings or The Babysitter Murders? The Babysitter Murders, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, I kind of think that's interesting, because, and obviously I think, I mean, a lot of it has to do with the fact that he killed his sister, right. but that was also his babysitter. And I think that's part of that, that is kind of who he's going for, go, yep. going after in, in the film. And I also like this movie takes place on Halloween because there were so many shots. I'm like, this is the middle of the day. How are you getting away with this? And yet, it's Halloween. It's like the one day of the year that's socially acceptable where you can look out of place. And it's like, right. oh no, it's just it's Halloween. Yeah, which I really that's a smart choice. Enjoy, yeah, yeah, because you could have said it at some other time and it would have been any. A lot of those shots would have been. This is really creepy. We're going to call the cops and we're just going to end this thing right now. Yeah. But he gets away with... There's so many of those just... He's just looming shots. And it's... Those are good. And Jamie Lee, you know... Yeah, first first film performance. I know she was on a TV show that I didn't write the name of down. Because... Why I, would you? I, I don't know it. So it's a yes from me? Oh, it's it's a yes from me. And it's... You know... Let me think of a really bad... Citizen Kane, it is not. But... We're not talking about, you know, film and movies and blockbusters and epics. The movie the the book is called A Thousand One Movies You Must See Before You Die. And like 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 Roger Ebert said, we see movies for different reasons. I think the good movies are the movies that get reactions out of us. Doesn't matter if they're good, if it's about laughter or getting a good a good cry out or being scared. They're all important because it's about it's about actually getting a reaction out of you. Yeah, you know, no, all, when, all feelings are valid feelings. Like, if a film makes you feel nothing, then it's worthless. It, that's what I was going to say, is, is you should never be passive watching a movie. You know, it shouldn't be about totally zoning out. You should be invested. Totally. I'm going to do it every time. Okay, you should be invested watching a movie. You should want to cry or laugh or be scared. And this movie does a really good job of scaring you. And if for some reason you haven't seen it yet... Don't just try to catch it on TV. Don't catch it halfway through. Don't watch the clips. Don't do what I did. Watch this thing from start to finish because it's 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 really worth it. Nitpicks aside, it's worth it. Yeah, and I'm I'll be going to see uh, the new Halloween this weekend. I've been waiting for it all year, and so I'll definitely throw some stuff up on uh, on the Twitter about you know how I feel about the sequel compared to the original. And we would love to hear what you think as well. If you're going to the movies this weekend, if you've seen the original or if you haven't, and what you think of the new one. Absolutely. Uh, on Twitter or on Facebook, you can hit us up on both of those uh, those fantastic social media sites. Uh, you can hear this uh, uh, podcast and all of our other podcasts on Google Play and Spotify and on iTunes. 
iTunes is a big one for us. If you don't mind giving us a rating and a review, we would really appreciate it. We want to keep doing this for a long time. we got a lot more movies we want to cover. Uh, that's a yes from both of us. I'm Adam. And I'm Ian. And we will see you next week. 